Jesus, I thank you that you um, forgive us and, and work with us even in our uh, struggles and in our selfishness. And when we decide to walk in our flesh, Lord, you, you bring your Holy Spirit with a heavy conviction in our heart and you draw us back to you with cords of love. And I thank you, God, that we cannot um, fix ourselves. We can't bring ourselves back to you, but you are the only one who does that work. And every time, Jesus, that we uh, feel the urge to draw to come back to you, Lord, that is evidence of your Holy Spirit at work in our heart and in our life. And just further evidence that we can take no credit uh, for what you are making us. So Lord, help us to just be able to trust you daily uh, to and, and walk with you uh, with a more um, surrendered heart each and every day. Thank you for everyone in here from the from the youngest baby. Uh, to the oldest person, Jesus, that uh, you know every single one of us and you'll never leave us or forsake us. God, and you um, walk with us through our struggles, our, our failures, and uh, it doesn't even, Lord, affect you. you. You love us beyond that. You love us through it. So, Lord, we thank you for that. We ask that uh, your word would become alive in our heart today, uh, Lord, that we would hear your Holy Spirit and that we would respond with trust and with broken humility before you. In your name we pray. Amen. 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 Today is a real exciting uh, topic. We're going to talk about the brazen altar, uh, which is brazen is another word for bronze. And uh, uh, so that's the topic we're in. We're in a, a portion of scripture where Moses is being given and taught by God himself on top of the mountain, in the midst of fire, God is teaching him how to build his tabernacle or his uh, way that he is going to dwell with his people. And, and so each and every part of this tabernacle is connected with who? Jesus, right. Jesus is the one who tabernacles with us. And so Jesus is is this tabernacle. This tabernacle foreshadows him. And in, if we keep Jesus at the forefront of our mind, we will be able to understand all the parts of this tabernacle in such a, a more clear way, and it will really help us. So today we're going to start with Romans 6.23, and keep your finger in Exodus, but Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so another, another title for today, besides just the brazen altar, could be, what, is, uh, what does God hate? What does God hate? God is love, right? And everybody loves talking about how much God is love. He, he is perfect love, and that's very true. Um, but the fire and intensity of his love cannot be understood without understanding what he hates as well. Because God is love and he is perfect love means that God perfectly hates certain things as well. Now, this is already making everyone uncomfortable. I see the, the shoulders are tightening up, tensing up, and like, wait a minute, he's talking about God being a hateful, vengeful God. Well, we, we need to talk about it. The love of God... The, the, to love perfectly means you have to hate that which hurts or defiles the thing that you love. 
You have to hate that thing. If you love your wife, you will hate anything that causes harm to your wife. If you love your kids, you want to protect them. In other words, you hate what's evil concerning the object of your love. So what God has is not a selfish or out-of-control wrath, but a perfect and holy hatred of sin, which he knows will harm us more than we could ever, ever imagine. God hates sin. The intensity of God's love for purity and what's right is equaled only by his hate of all that is wrong. Think about that. It's not popular to talk about the hate of God, but really, we want God to be, to have this perfect hatred. We do. And I'll convince you that you actually want God to hate sin. We could never get a good night's sleep if we had a God that might accept something that is evil. He might turn his back on us in a in a abandoning way. He if he if there's any possibility that God could behave in an evil way or accept what's evil, then none of us could ever get a good night's sleep because we would have fear, so much fear in our hearts that God might just one day decide to do evil to us at any moment. So we all want God to hate evil because that's the only kind of God that's pure. And, and his love, would we can trust in his love for us, because we are the object of his love. We have to have a God that hates. But we need to talk about it to understand it. And we can never understand his love if we can't comprehend his wrath in an equal measure. So we have to be able to understand them both in the same way. In Romans chapter 2, verses 5 through 9, I'm going to read you this text, okay? It's important for us to just set the stage. It says, But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourselves wrath in the day of wrath at the revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each one according to his deeds. And this is like the first verse we read that talked about wages, that Romans, uh, uh, the first verse, which is Romans 6.23. And then he goes on to say, eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality, but to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish, on every soul of man that does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek. So what this verse is saying is that every single one of us is evil. We are evil. No one does good, and no one will ever measure up to his standards. He says, if you live up to the standards, if you do good all the time, you could go to heaven, but that's not designed to give you confidence in going to heaven according to your good works. It's designed to make you afraid. It's designed to make you understand that we cannot measure up. And so there has to be another way for us to be able to enter heaven, which would be the grace of Jesus Christ, his blood washing away that sin, which we'll get to a little bit 
later. There has to be another option besides our performance, is what this verse is saying. Our performance to live up to God's standard will be judged. You guys know judgment is coming. It's not popular to talk about in this world, but we will all be judged according to our works. Every single person will be judged, and he will say, you have failed to measure up to my standard. Every single one of us. Even the best of us, it says, are like filthy rags according to God's perfect standard. So God's wrath against sin always ends in death. That's the punishment. If we're judged as a rule breaker, a law breaker, the end of that is being expelled from God's presence, which is the definition of eternal death. Not fun, not popular. He will find, there is no escape from this judgment. He will find sin, he will judge it, and he will destroy it. You cannot run from this cop. I got a buddy, and he, was, he had a brother, and every time they would um, get pulled over by the police, his brother just had this instinct to just get out of the car and run. And every time he got tased and taken to jail, even though he did nothing wrong. And, and my buddy was like, why, brother, are you doing this? And he's like, I don't know. I just panic and freak out. And he just ran, and he would get to, and this happened three times that I know of. And he would go to jail, and his brother would go bail him out. It's just, you can't run from a cop. You hear that, boys? Don't run from the cop. Yet, all this bad news we've been talking about, all this really intense wrath stuff, God is designing a way for us sinners to be accepted and forgiven. He, is, he chooses to place this big bronze altar that we're going to study today as the first thing we see as we enter a place of relationship with him. So the, the tabernacle is, is a big uh, like gated area, and as soon as you enter that, right in front of you is going to be what we see today, which is the bronze altar. The first thing we see. Um, and, and just so we know, the word altar comes from the Hebrew word, which means killing place, a killing place. Um, it's the place where this judgment that we've been talking about, uh, God's hate of sin, it's the place where that judgment happens, where the fire of God's wrath is poured out on an innocent animal. So they would take a sheep or a goat or a cow, and they would tie him to this altar, and they would slit its throat, and its blood would pour into a certain area, and then he would be in the fire, and the fire would consume the rest of the animal. And the guilty person who brought in the innocent animal is able to go free and enjoy communion with God in this tabernacle. And we're going to find out this all is representative of you today and Jesus, and and we're going to talk about that as we keep going on. So let's get to our text now in Exodus chapter 27. Go and open up there. Verses 1 through 8. You shall make an altar of acacia wood, five cubits long and five cubits wide. And the altar shall be square, and its height shall be three cubits. And you shall make its horns and its four corners. Its horns shall be of one piece with it, and you shall overlay it with bronze. Also, you shall make its pans to receive its ashes and its shovels 
and its basins and its forks and its firepans, and you shall make all its utensils of bronze. And you shall make a grate for it, a network of bronze, and on the network you shall make uh, four bronze rings at its four corners. And you shall put it under the rim of the altar beneath that the network may be midway up the altar. And you shall make poles for the altar, poles of acacia wood, and overlay them with bronze. This was for moving, moving it. And the poles shall be put in the rings, and the poles shall be put on the two sides of the altar to bear it. And you shall make it hollow with boards, as was shown to you on the mountain, so they shall they make it. So, what do you guys think uh, the bronze altar is going to represent or foreshadow? What do you think? Jesus. Good answer. <laughs> 12 Jesus points for you. Yeah, it, it's going to represent Jesus. What does the metal bronze represent? Does anyone know? In the Bible, metals are, yeah, in the Bible, metals are very important. Gold represents divinity. Silver, we've studied, represents redemption. Bronze or brass represents judgment or punishment or death. That's what this represents. So we see here, just big picture, how Jesus is going to take all our judgment and our death. He is both the sacrifice on the altar and he is the altar itself. Because we see this altar is made of the acacia wood that has symbolized Jesus so many times as we've been going through this study. So he is the sacrifice, meaning Jesus is the innocent life that is killed so that the guilty can go free and be forgiven. Isn't that beautiful? We all say amen? That's right. And he is the altar, though. He's not just that. He's also the altar. Just as the fire of God burns in this altar, so the body of Jesus endured the fire of God's wrath inside his very soul. They nailed him to the cross. That was people doing their worst. They beat him. They spit upon him. They mocked him. They did all that. Man poured out his wrath on Jesus. But that wasn't the half of it. For the last three years, hours that Jesus was on the cross, the sky went dark, and God poured out his fury and his anger and his hatred on all sin within the body of Jesus Christ. Have you thought about that before? All the anger that that you have earned from God, all the bad things we've done, all the mistakes that we've made, God poured out that wrath in the soul of his own son. And that is very important for us to meditate upon. Let it soften your heart. Let it break the, the, the ground apart so that his Holy Spirit can do work in our hearts. Is this consistent with the rest of Scripture, that Jesus is the sacrifice and Jesus is the altar and that bronze is about punishment? Yes, it is. There's a story called the, about the bronze serpent. Have you guys ever uh, seen an ambulance driving down the road and you see the, the pole, like a stick and a snake going around it? Sometimes there's two of them. And, and most people in this world have no clue why that's there. But it's on every ambulance you see. I mean, almost everyone, except the really carnal ones. No, just kidding. I don't know. Um, 
This comes from a story in Numbers chapter 21, which follows what we're, what we're studying now. But God continues this, this practice of using the metal of bronze to represent judgment and sin. And, and in Numbers chapter 21, I'll tell you the story. The people sinned. Okay, they complained against God. They rebelled against his rule and his authority in their life. They're like, I, I don't want you to rule over me. I want to go back to Egypt. I hate Moses. I hate Aaron. All the people were just big, fat losers. And, and this is the heart of all sin. I don't want God to be my boss. I want to do what I want to do. And I don't want anyone to tell me guff about it. You guys been there? You bunch of sinners. Yes, that's what we do. I don't need him. That's the same thing that, that Satan convinced Eve of. You don't need God. Just do this or do that. Rebel against what he said, and you're free from his rule. But she didn't know that put her under slavery to another. His rebellion and that slave master is way worse than God ever was. God wanted to pour life and, and for them to be complete. And Anyway. You guys know. So God sends poisonous snakes to bite and kill all these people. <gasps> what a mean God. No, he's not mean. It is not because he's a mean God that he sent these poisonous snakes to bite the people, but to help them understand the consequences of this type of rebellion against God. These are his children. These aren't just the people in the world. These are his children who have said, we want you to be our God. We want to follow you. And he's like, oh, really? You do? Great. I want you to be my people too. So when you do something wrong, there's a spanking because I love you. And I discipline you. Right, boy? <laughs> They're not too excited about this part of the Bible study. You cannot escape this discipline, you cannot run from it. And, and the sad thing is, is that you will die because of rebellion. So God is trying to stop them from being rebellious. Okay? So the people all cry out to God for forgiveness and, and for healing. And so God says, yeah, let's do that. I don't want the people to die. I want them to live. They're my people. So God tells Moses, he gives him instruction to build a bronze serpent and put it on a pole, a wooden pole. And uh, he would put the pole up high, up on a hill, and anyone who looked at the bronze serpent on the pole would be healed. Isn't that amazing? So in Numbers chapter 21, verse 9, I'll just this one verse, it says, So Moses made the bronze serpent, put it up on a pole, and so it was, if, if the serpent had bitten anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. So all these ambulances driving around our city and all the hospitals that have the pole with the snake around it, do you know what that picture is? It's Jesus. They literally have Jesus' name slapped on their ambulance. And I think a lot of them don't even know it. Because it represents looking to him in faith. But, but wait, wait a second. How can this be Jesus? The snake, I'm telling you, is Jesus. The pole is the cross. The snake is hung on the pole. But snakes represent sin, 
So how can Je- I thought Jesus didn't have any sin. Wasn't he the perfect human being? And this is what's so beautiful about the gospel is that Jesus became our snake for us. We are the snakes, guys. We are the snakes. When God sent snakes among the people, he was sending them their brothers and sisters because they were acting like dirty, rotten snakes. And they were already poisoned. The snakes just were a physical manifestation of what was already going on in their heart and in their spirit. So Jesus was sinless. He had no sin, but he comes and he takes the judgment, brass. He made a brass serpent that we deserve by becoming the snake for us. He became the poison snake that we deserved. He was nailed to the tree as the terrible victim of God's wrath. He actually became the snake. The most hated and cursed image of all that God hates, sin. Jesus became hated by God during that time period so that you could go free. So that if you looked to him, And in your look, you said, I believe and I need that. You are forgiven and you are washed clean. Isn't that great? Amen. Wait, are you sure Jesus became the most disgusting, vile object of God's wrath? Yes. Galatians chapter 3 verse 13 says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse. For us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. That bronze snake was hung on that wooden pole just as Jesus was hung on the cross and Jesus was judged for our sin. He took the bronze, right? The, The perfect hatred of God on sin was poured out on his beautiful, obedient son that never did anything wrong. And in submission, even in this, Jesus said, not my will be done, but yours, Father. The beauty and glory of this gospel has no ends. We could just talk about this forever because it's the most important thing in our lives, in the world. And this is what the altar that we're studying today teaches us about. Every Jew under the old covenant who desired to know God had to deal with the altar first. If you wanted to know God, you had to go to the altar. Period. There's no way around it. Sacrifice was required Blood needed to be spilled. So that's their situation. Now fast forward all these thousands of years, and we live 2,000 years after Jesus. And under the new covenant that we live in, we have an altar too. And our altar is the cross. And we must first come directly to the cross if any one of us desires to know God to fellowship with God, we must come to the cross first. And what do we see when we approach our altar, the cross? God shows us how things really are at the altar. There's no other way. The altar is the only way. In Psalm 118, verse 27, God says, God is the Lord and he has given us light And then he says this, bind the sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. Whoa, what does this mean? Well, 
we read in our text that there were horns, four horns, and they were just like pointy things on the corners of this altar. And so what they would do, horns symbolize, symbolize in, in the ancient world strength, power. And, and so why did the altar need horns? Well, what it was is they would tie down the sacrificing animal and bind it to the altar on these horns. So they would take ropes and they would bind it right there and then they would kill it. They would slay and slaughter the sacrificial animal as it was bound to the horns. They strongly held the sacrifice in place so it couldn't wiggle its way off. Because these animals don't want to be killed, right? But if you don't hear anything else I say, listen right now. It wasn't nails or ropes that bound Jesus to the cross. What bound him to the cross was love. He was bound to the horns of the altar. He would not move because of his love for us. His enemies even challenged him and they said, if you're the Christ, then come down and we'll believe in you. Remember? And the strength that held Jesus to the altar was his love for his father. I'm going to obey you, father. And his love for us. I will sacrifice for you. The hate that God had for sin reveals the love God has for you. You see, when we study hate, the hate of God, all it really does is highlight and show the beauty and glory of the love Jesus demonstrated for us. It's amazing. First Peter 2.24 says, He, sorry, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we having died to sins, may live for righteousness for, the, for whose, by whose stripes you were healed. What a beautiful verse. When we come to this altar by faith, we are healed of the rebellious heart that we were infected with. We are healed. His grace heals us changes us, not just forgives us, but there's a changing and a transforming through his grace alone, through his gospel alone. If we could change ourselves and heal ourselves, why would Jesus need to be sacrificed on the altar? That would be removing the altar from being the first thing that you see when you come into relationship with Jesus. And God says, don't do that. Make this exactly how I showed you on the mountain. The altar must be the first thing you think about every time we begin a relationship with God and daily in our relationship with God. So what do we need to do at this altar every day? If this is a daily thing, do we sacrifice animals like they did back? Does Jesus get sacrificed every day? Like some some portions of Christianity, like he's always on the cross, always being re-sacrificed over and over. Well, what happens instead of Jesus being sacrificed on the cross every day, that's not true Christianity. We join with him 
daily in sacrifice to him, with him. And this is called sanctification. In Galatians 2.20, it says, I have been crucified with Christ. Now, obviously, I'm not hanging on the cross today, and every morning I don't wake up and nail my kids to a cross. No, I don't, surprisingly, although they deserve it, just as I do. No, we don't. I have been crucified with Christ is in the spiritual realm by faith. We can enter his body on the cross. So by faith, somehow we are transported when you wake up and you remember Christ on the cross and you say, that was for me. Your life is transported back into the cross and is crucified and killed there. And his life that rose three days later is somehow transported into you and the new life of the Spirit is granted to us who join with him by faith every day. And he says, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Wow, that goes like really perfectly with everything we're talking about today. A couple of pages later in Galatians 6, 14, he says, But God forbid that I should boast in anything except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. So what we see here is you and me, we join Jesus on the cross, not physically, but spiritually Day by day. It's not by works, climbing up on the cross, doing more to follow Jesus, giving up more, serving more. That's not how this works. But by faith, believing in the works that Jesus did for me. Does that make sense? It's not what we do for him or what we sacrifice. He did the sacrifice. And he said, it is almost finished. No, right? He said, it is finished. All the sacrificing that ever needs to be done is done. And we do the receiving. We do the receiving. That's how we come to this altar, is not to sacrifice ourselves, but to receive and join with him in his sacrifice so that his life can be poured into us. And I know that you guys have heard this all before. But I also know that many times we grow calloused and used to hearing about Jesus all the time. Oh, I know Jesus died on the cross for me. I know I need to I need to seek him every day. But I want us to let the seriousness of of this just sink into our hearts because it is so refreshing to climb up on that cross in surrender and allow his life to pour through our veins again and be pumped through our life again. When we sometimes sterilize the death of Jesus and, and the cross and his sacrifice, we don't, because we don't like bloody things. You know, Halloween and all the, the, the you know, we recoil at, ah, bloody zombie, ah. We just don't. Like, I mean, some people do, but they're weird. and We don't like it. We recoil at, at, at the graphic nature of this story. 
We don't like to think about every day, like cutting the throat of an animal and blood going everywhere and getting all over us and all over everything and it smells and it's fire. And I don't even like, you know, having a campfire because I smell like smoke afterwards, right? But if we don't dwell here and remember this sacrifice every day, can we really know Jesus? if we don't look on this bloody lamb that was slain for our sins? Do we really know him? If we don't look at the bronze serpent, can we be healed? If we don't deal with the bronze and altar, how can we experience the freedom that only that altar gives us? In Isaiah chapter 5 and 6, and we're going to end with this, this story. Isaiah 5 and 6 is one of the most amazing pictures of this in the Bible. And the question I ask you before we even get into this is, have you ever seen the true nature of your sin? Have you ever been horrified when looking at, at the state of your own heart? Isaiah did. And his one and only response was two words. Or three words. Woe is me. Woe is me. That's all Isaiah had to say. And and Isaiah, in in his book, in chapter 5, he he had just finished speaking six woes on the people around him, on the country, for all of their sinfulness. And he was just going to town, wrecking them, just saying, you guys are terrible over here. You suck at that. You're awful over here. And you guys are blah. And then he was ushered into the presence of God. Isaiah was. And Isaiah saw the glory of God. And he saw the train of his robe filled the temple with glory. And he saw these weird creatures around him that were, these creatures were holy angels. And these holy angels could destroy the entire earth with one motion. But yet these angels looked upon God and they had never done anything wrong. And these angels covered their own faces as they proclaimed holy, holy, holy. They wouldn't even look upon God even though they were perfect. Had never done anything wrong. God's holiness was so intense, so bright, his, his power and authority so unchallengeable that the angels, even in, in, in doing their duty to praise God, covered their own faces. And here Isaiah is brought in to this situation. And Isaiah realizes very quickly, I am in big trouble because I and not even as holy as these angels. And yet I am looking upon God. And what did Isaiah do? He covered his face. He lost every amount of strength and self-sufficiency. And he just wept and said, woe is me. I am an un- a person of unclean lips. I dwell among a people of unclean hearts. And what did God do? He struck him down and killed him. No, he didn't. Just kidding. You've got to be careful what you hear. Pastors could trick you. God directed an angel to take a coal from the altar that was still alive, like still with the fire in it. And he, he directed the angel to go and touch the lips 
of Isaiah. How do you think that felt? <laughs> it probably hurt. It probably hurt. It was, it was a real live coal and it touched his lips. But it cleansed him. What that did, it symbolically showed that Isaiah, you have trusted in the sacrifice of this, that this altar foreshadows, Jesus. You have trusted in that, Isaiah. And so here, take this coal, this what's left of the sacrifice. There's nothing left. The, the, the sin and the sacrifice, has been, the offering has been burnt up, but the coal is left. And he said, he put that to his lips and, and that fire touched Isaiah and it spread from his lips to his heart. And I feel like today that's the only thing that we need today. We need our hearts to be lit on fire again. We grow calloused, we grow tired, we grow self-centered, we grow um, self-sufficient. But I hope that we get a new vision of God's glory today and it scares us. It terrifies us. But weirdly intrigues us. And that that altar and as we meditate on the sacrifice of Christ and abide there, that God will send an angel and he will touch our lips, which will cleanse our whole life so that we can go on from here today and serve Jesus Christ like Isaiah did from the heart. Not because we have to, but because we've been invited into his presence, invited to join with him in a mission, in a, uh, to enlist in his army. He has so graciously invited us to be part of his kingdom. There is no entrance exam except, has, are, is your heart on fire? Is your heart filled with the residue of what the altar has produced? I don't need your strength. I don't need your efforts. I don't need anything you bring to the table. You are free. I have done it all. And I'm asking you to receive it. Don't turn away from the coal. Receive it. And yeah, it hurts to confess our sinfulness before the Lord. That humility just burns sometimes. But guys, the life that follows is beautiful. And I encourage you guys today, as we spend some more time, we're not done with service, worshiping him. Ask the Lord in that humility like Isaiah did. Lord, I need you. Ask him to come and, and fill you with his spirit. Let the, let the work that Jesus accomplished, the coal, ask God, set my heart on fire again. You guys with me? Then we're together. Let's stand up. We have a communion during these last couple songs, so you really have time right now to deal with the Lord. To, uh, to not just forget anything that we've talked about, but to, to let these images bounce around in your mind and ask the Lord to make them real in your heart. I, I get it if, if this just seems you know, like something you've heard a million times. Let's all stand up. Maybe we've heard it a million times. Maybe we feel like the uh, same old thing. We, you always talk about Jesus at church. Well, that's my job. I'm going to talk about Jesus. Stand up. So, 
Let's pray. Father, I pray for every heart in here, young and old and, and uh, those who are, are soft and open to the moving of your spirit, but also those who are hardened and maybe have been going through uh, some really difficult things. Maybe temptation has been getting the best of us. Lord, woe is us. Woe am I. God, I um, need your cross to become real in my heart. I need your life to burn inside me. And Jesus, how can I do that on my own? I can't. So we ask that you would send a spiritual uh, gift, maybe through an angel, maybe by your own hand. I don't know how it works, God, but I need your coal to touch me. And I need the altar to, uh, to even be in your presence. God, I thank you for the, the every single person here and every single person watching online. And God, we pray that there would be a revival of trust in you, a revival of humbly uh, admitting and acknowledging our sinfulness. We are, we are a lot of times terrible and selfish. And God, we need to be transformed and we ask for your mercy and grace to do this work. So Lord, I pray that during this time you would come and, and by your Holy Spirit you convict us of our sin. And Lord, that we would, we would wait upon you to bring the healing and, uh, and comfort that we so desperately need. We thank you, Jesus, for giving your life and your blood for us so that your new resurrection life could flow into us. Lord, we believe in what you have done. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.